All right. Um, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Hoop Sneakers pod. Um, you're with Dan. Uh, and I thought I'd do something different for this one. Um, I'm not going to talk about sneakers today. I want to talk about NBA. Um, and I'm just going to run this in the normal feed. Um, for those of you that are following me over on Hoop Sneakers at Hoops underscore Sneakers on Instagram, you'll notice I'm a bit of an NBA fan. And obviously, that ties in pretty closely to um, performance basketball footwear. Um, so for this episode today, um, actually one of my a co-worker and uh, a friend of mine, Lucas, is a Los Angeles Lakers fan and I'm a Portland Trailblazers fan. And those two teams squared off in uh, game one of the first round of the playoffs today in, in the 1-8 matchup out west. Um, so I thought it'd be fun now that the game's uh, finished uh, just to have a chat about it. Uh, so uh, Lucas is here. Uh, he watched the game live, and then I've obviously um, caught up on the uh, condensed game and watched the um, highlights package from that one. So we're just going to bounce back and forth about what we saw in today's game. Um, so I'll welcome in Lucas here. Hi, guys. Um, thanks for the intro, Dan. Um, as he said, we've been friends for a number of years now, and I've been a Lakers fan for a long time. So I was... I sort of knew this was coming when we were matching up and uh, when Portland took game one, as I'm sure we'll touch on later on, that Dan would want to have a conversation about it. So more than happy to come on here and uh, share my thoughts. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, took, we spoke pretty extensively, obviously, after, the, uh, after Portland um, won the play-in over the Grizzlies and, and secured this matchup. And we both had our concerns either way. Like, obviously, as a Portland fan... Um, and the fact that they essentially had no wing players this season after Rodney Hood went down. Um, I was worried about the matchup with LeBron James um, as I expected that he would be guarded the majority of the time by someone like Gary Trent Jr. or um, or Carmelo Anthony. Because, um, like, you know, Paul and have great guards and they've got a good centre rotation, um, but obviously no... Strong wing players um, to match up with LeBron. And then conversely, you know, Lucas expressed to me that with Avery Bradley staying home um, and even without someone like Rajon Rondo uh, and with the form and with the, the way Damian Lillard's been playing, he was worried about the matchup with uh, the backcourt of um, Portland, uh, which is probably fair enough um, considering um, Damian Lillard's run that he's been having uh, as we go into these playoffs. Um, so, I mean, I guess... Going into that, I you know overall I think both of those uh, concerns were valid on both ends, just from the way that both like the Dame and LeBron played. Um, but like I know you know uh, Lucas has uh, he you know has some observations about the game that he saw LeBron play, and then obviously I was um, taken aback by the the shot making, um, especially in the fourth quarter from Dame. So I mean, Lucas, you you, you said that. Um, the passing from LeBron in this one was, um, you know, really exceptional. So, yeah, look, it was. It was fantastic, and I would probably go out on a limb to say that it was one of the most impressive passing games I've seen in LeBron's career. Um, I followed LeBron for a long time, and I followed the Lakers for a long time, um, and I watched a lot of games that he's played in. And you know, for him to put up 16 assists, um, especially in a playoff game, a close half-court game was rather low-scoring, not a lot of transition was just a testament to how well he was moving the ball. Um, and look, there was, I would say that there would have been a number of other opportunities where he made the great kick-out pass to open shooters who failed to knock them down. So he could have easily had a career-high 20 assists in this game or more if players were able to knock down the shots. 
The thing that, from my uh, point of view, which I guess LeBron did a good job taking advantage of during this game, but probably as a whole the team didn't, was trying their best to exploit Portland having either a, a true centre or two centres on at any one time. Terry Stotts did go a number of times to have Nurkic and Whiteside both on the floor together. Probably, look, in my observation was in a way to combat the Lakers' front line, quite often playing Davis at the four and having either Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee on the floor meant that uh, the Lakers were... Offensive rebounding was fantastic. Um, and they, you know, Portland needed to do something else to combat that, especially in the front line, as well as to take away from the Lakers' ability to get to the rim. Yeah, so, well, it's a, that's interesting, like, because um, we, we spoke about Whiteside as well, um, and that he was actually uh, fantastic in this game. He was a plus 13 off the bench, and I believe blocked um, a number of key shots uh, there down the stretch uh, for Portland um, to thwart the Lakers' sort of uh, attack at the end there. Whiteside was not good at all in the Brooklyn game. Um which makes sense, I guess they only have they only have one center on the roster, so they were playing an extremely like perimeter heavy wing heavy lineup, and the the white side uh, Nurkic combo in that game wasn't very successful. And then there was at, at times um, Stotts went with a white side uh, white side Hazonia and Carmelo uh, front line, which um, was extremely flammable defensively. Um, but yeah, so. But then, like, obviously Whiteside came through and, and delivered really well in this game. And the, the other thing we were lacking was Zach Collins, who I expected him to get some run on LeBron because um, I thought, you know, he's got a bit of size and a little bit of quickness. Probably not the most ideal matchup, but probably one of Portland's best. Um, and, yeah, he went down in the Grizzlies game with an, uh, with ankle inflammation and obviously wasn't able to line up for Portland in this one. So they started out with Wenyan Gabriel, um, who was uh, serviceable, um, but yeah, he he ended up matched up uh, a little bit on Anthony Davis, and I'm just looking at his line here now. So he only played 16 minutes. He had five fouls, um, but you know, four points, three rebounds, three assists. But those fouls, Lucas, you were you were saying that? Yeah, when you like, he I thought he played solidly. Look, I haven't seen a lot of him play before, and he gave them good energy. He played hard on defense, but. He did fall victim to the old rookie playing on a superstar. He got Davis got a really nice whistle on the possessions where he was matched up with Gabriel, where Gabriel had solid defensive position. Davis ran into his body, and the refs consistently put Davis on the line in those situations, which I think Davis, yeah, took 17 free throws for the game. Quite a lot of those came at the expense of fouls on Wenyan Gabriel, which, look, was a good decision by Davis. Davis struggled for most of the game to make shots from the field. He was 8 of 24 and 0 of 5 from beyond the three-point line. Davis was one of a number of Lakers who struggled from the three-point line. The, day, uh, the Lakers shot 5 for 32 at 15% from beyond the arc. The only player to make more than one three was Danny Green, who also struggled shooting 2 for 8. Yeah, sorry, I'll just break back in here. Um, yeah, the, the three-point shooting uh, and just the, the, the perimeter shooting, the jump shooting overall from the Lakers was something that you noted was a struggle for them and has been um, historically and across the regular season and now going into the playoffs. Um, absolutely. I, I just want to circle back just to, to, to close off on the what brought us here, which was the pairing of Nurkic and Whiteside. 
But just on talking about that pairing where you said that you thought you felt LeBron James failed to exploit that, um, it was it was hard to see just from from me. We're just watching the um, the condensed version, like to see who was spent a lot of time matched up on LeBron. Like as I predicted, I, I did see Gary Trent stuck on him a couple times, uh, maybe in like sort of a uh, sort of a mid post isolation type, or like at the free throw line with LeBron, and like Gary Trent is like he's got. Okay size. He's a guard. He's six foot five, and he weighs about two hundred, two twenty pounds, or whatever. And he's strong, but like it's so funny, just like watching him on the NBA floor with LeBron makes him look tiny. So, um, and like like I said, I, I alluded to to before. I expected Zach Collins to get some of that responsibility, but he was absent from today's game. So then the only other player that I felt that the Portland that Portland had on the roster was probably Carmelo Anthony, who has obviously you know they're the closest of friends, and they were drafted in the same year and. You know they have similar size, but you know in terms of their like uh, their longevity and their athleticism, like at this point LeBron's still far more athletic and quicker um, than Carmelo. Um, but I mean, listening just uh, before today's game to a, a couple other um, observers like on their podcast saying that like historically or traditionally LeBron uh, Carmelo, pardon me, has done a decent job on LeBron James guarding him. So I just wanted if. Uh, you wanted to talk about like the the one on one matchups with LeBron, the times they were maybe matched up in the half court. Yeah, I, look, I think Mello look Mello did play quite a number of possessions on LeBron along with Gary Trent. They were probably the two primary defenders on LeBron for the game. I think they both did a relatively good job. Uh, I think it was probably more of a team defensive scheme from Portland. They did play a number of possessions in a zone, okay. um, mainly focusing on protecting the rim, which. Yeah probably was due to the fact that the Lakers did struggle to make three-pointers for the majority of the game, which meant they weren't able to get Portland out of the zone. They were happy to let Lakers take semi-contested threes so long as they had a guaranteed one, sometimes two players at the rim to defend those drives from LeBron and from Davis. Yep. So, look, Anthony and Gary Trent, they, look, they, they played solid. They did their job. Yep. When LeBron got penetration, they quite often they, they funneled him towards a rim protector. Yep. And as you mentioned before, Whiteside, he had five blocks in this game. He did a great job at just defending the rim, making shots tough. You know, he, he blocks five, but there's probably five or six other possessions as well where he makes the, the Lakers driver take a really tough shot or discourage them from even shooting. That happened a number of times as well. And even including LeBron. LeBron drove a number of times, saw it was Whiteside rotating over to meet him at the rim, decided not to challenge him and kicked out to a player with, you know, five seconds on the shot clock for a tough shot, which... If it wasn't Whiteside being in the room, he's probably going up and scoring or getting fouled on most of those possessions. Yeah, it, it's it's so it's it's almost ironic, like because I I know from the, like this season and in previously like Luis, you've been one of like Whiteside's biggest like fans, I guess, or one of his biggest supporters. I know that within the basketball community, he gets a bit of a bad rap in terms of some sometimes his motivation or his attitude towards the game and and his um propensity to maybe put up counting stats at the detriment of his advanced statistics, but. Like like you like you said just then, you just um, encapsulated what like what value that he can bring and what he does bring to a team defensively when he's like engaged, locked in, when he has a clear role, and even if he's like um, getting you know some if, if he's getting looked at occasionally offensively or being engaged on that end, like you know he had seven points on four shots from the field, and he was at the free throw line a couple of times, but like. I mean, it, it is just so funny that, you know, Whiteside would, would have um, a great game against, like, the Lakers, who play traditionally big and have two centers that had arguably, like, um, really good regular seasons, um, but have just struggled so far in, in, the, uh, in the restart 
in JaVale McGee and, and Dwight Howard. So I think um, I think what we can do, we've talked a lot about um, here what uh, what happened when the Lakers had the ball on offense and their offensive performance as we spoke to the three-point shooting um, and what, what Portland did defensively. But what we could probably transition to now is, um, you know, when Portland had the ball and, like, it all starts with Damian Lillard and uh, he was you know, really spectacular once again at especially shot making from deep and like long, deep range. Um, like Dame had 34 points to go with five rebounds, five assists. Um, he was nine of 21 from the floor, hit six of 13 threes and was perfect 10 of 10 at the line. Um, and, you know, as, as I touched on earlier, uh, you know, the Lakers have, the Lakers have good, a good guard rotation, but probably not the most ideal candidate to, guard a player like Damian Lillard with the absence of Avery Bradley. Um, like, of course, they've still got um, some... They've still got some length and some, like, capable NBA players that to start the game, like um, Danny Green and Contavious Caldwell-Pope and then um, Caruso off the bench. But I guess, um, like, Lucas, like, what did, what did you see, like, the Lakers and then Frank Vogel and then the guards? What was their, like, main sort of point of attack defense on Damian, the way they tried to make make it as hard as possible for him and then also to try and get the ball out of his hands. Yeah, so the look, from my perspective, the main strategy that the Lakers employed was getting up really high on the on-ball screens. It's been well documented that Dame has been shooting the ball beautifully, especially from a long way behind the three-point line, which draws the defense out a long way. So Portland was setting on-ball screens, you know, court-to-court, even behind. Lakers were still going over those screens. They had to bring the screener's man up in help, and then Dane's man would lock and trail and put as much pressure on him as high as possible because of the gravity that he had. Um, I think, you know, they made an effort to chase him off the line as often as possible. He's been shooting the three ball extremely well, especially from deep, trying to get him inside the arc and then to make decisions from two-point range rather than three-point range where he's been making those. I think something that probably hasn't been documented as much with Lillard compared to potentially the three-point shooting, which is probably more so a spectacle, is his ability to get to the free-throw line. He consistently, in a lot of these bubble games, even previous before the season um, was postponed, and then now including today's game, has been getting to the line consistently in double digits and been hitting them at an extremely high clip. He was 10 of 10 from the line again today. Um, during the second and third quarter, Portland's offense dried up significantly, um, and they were really relying on free throws to keep their offense rolling. They were, you know, they were struggling. I think at one stage they were one of twelve from the field, but they had still scored, I think, fifteen points because they had made a number of free throws. Lillard was headlining that, getting to the line. Yeah, so that's something I've actually noted um, with the Trailblazers, uh, especially during the seeding games and in the playing game. Um, and the fact that they've been in a number of close games means that they've had to make free throws down the stretch. And that, that's something that I did note a few days ago is just like the way that almost every player on Portland's roster is able to like knock down free throws, especially in high pressure situations. Like even their, um, even their bigs, like especially Nurkic is a good free throw shooter. Um, CJ McCollum is a good free throw shooter. Gary Trent is a good free throw shooter. Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo is a great free throw shooter. Um, and like, I just, while Lucas was talking just then, I just looked up like uh, Dame's uh, per games for the season. So, yeah, he's uh, he's averaging 7.8 free throw attempts per game and hitting 88.8% of those. So, seven out of... He's hit seven of seven of eight free throws per game, which is uh, career high by... Um, he's, he's actually probably... It's probably somewhat underrated 
ever since his fourth season in the league, he's done a considerably good job of getting the free throw line, at least averaging at least six attempts a game. But um, it's a good point that um, that you bring up. And then it leads into just like what a lot of observers have been saying about Damian Lillard through this um, period of the NBA resumption is just that he seems under complete control of the game of basketball at all times when he's got the ball in his hand, whether he's looking to get inside the get inside the three-point line, get in the paint and try to score at the rim or get to the free throw line, whether he's looking to um, set up teammates, which he gets ample opportunity to do because he commands so much attention, or whether it is, like you said, when defences are not as uh, attentive to, obviously, what he does off the screen uh, and they've been going under screens, he'll just pull it from anywhere, like literally um, anywhere. And it's so funny because we were talking, we were just messaging, and I was keeping it, uh, watching the play-by-play as in that fourth quarter when you know Portland pulled away and, and put a, a gap in the, the margin of the, the game. And I'm watching the play-by-play, and it's like Damian Lillard makes 27-foot three-pointer. Damian Lillard makes 30-foot three-pointer. Damian Lillard makes 36-foot three-pointer. And I'm just like, I couldn't believe it. Was, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, and I, I, I got messaged Lucas, and I was like, the, 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 um, the play-by-play, these shot distances just keep getting more and more absurd as the quarter goes on. And I was like, how, like, the, isn't the NBA three-point like 24 feet or something? And it's like 23 and nine inches. And, you know, he's shooting the ball from 12 feet behind the three-point line. And I know um, I know teammate CJ, uh, he was actually on Zach Lowe's podcast recently. Um, and they were talking about Dame's range. And, and CJ was just like, look, man, he works on it. He practices it. There's shots that he takes um, at, at training in the gym. Like, he, he can shoot it with his form. He's strong. Um, and, they, like, they're... He doesn't just rock up to Orlando, Florida and start making these shots. Like There's a ton of work that's gone into his game um, and to be able to be playing at the level that he's playing at um, right now. But, um, yeah, I just I had that thought where, like, there's just a few players right now. Um, like And, like, the thought with these sort of players, like, that are extremely heliocentric, that have the ball in their hands, like James Harden or Luka Doncic, they're always, like, in complete control of their team's offense, um, and the way their teams are playing, and even like even to a lesser extent, like uh, you know, jazz guard Donovan Mitchell yesterday had 57, which is like the third highest um, scoring uh, game in the NBA playoffs in history. And we might talk about that a little bit later. But even in that game, someone like Donovan Mitchell uh, was at that level where he's just under complete control of everything that um, that their, their teams are doing in the game. So um, I'm not sure if like I mean. You know, to compliment uh, Damian Lillard, um, you know, CJ uh, was good in this one um, again. And I know that you've been a fan of CJ McCollum ever since the playoffs last year when um, Paul went on that run to the West Finals. Um, CJ McCollum is, uh, you know, he's a skill trainer's dream. He's um, He's got a, a bunch of combos, a bunch of um, dribble moves. He can go between the legs, behind the back. Uh, he can step back. Yeah, he can put a, a series of crossovers together and... And like he does, he does a lot of his work in the mid range. But that he's so valuable in this setting in the playoffs when the games do slow down, guys are struggling to make shots, and he's a tough shot maker. And like maybe because I know you could speak to like what you've seen from CJ um, previously, and just like his ability to create his own shot and score. So like, yeah, I, look, you're right in saying that, especially in the playoffs. You know, sometimes you look quite a few of the shots that CJ does take and that are his sort of go-to shots can be often criticised for shot selection. But in a game like a playoff game where it slows down, it's a gritty half-court game, you need guys who can make shots for themselves off the dribble. 
CJ's a guy like that. He put a lot of pressure on the guards. He only shot 8 of 20 today, which looked slightly below average, but he made some tough shots. You know, isolation, ability to pull up off the dribble and make jumpers, consistently put scoreboard pressure on the Lakers. And Lakers weren't able to match that. You know, they had LeBron making plays for arguably everyone, but they don't have a guy like CJ or Dame who can make those shots for themselves, especially from jump shots. That, you know, that ability to hit that consistently in a half-court setting can be really, really damaging. Yeah. Um, and what and what's good about CJ too is like he completely understands his role and that when he does when he is off the ball, he's prepared to work off the ball, um, come off pin downs or um, staggers, um, come into a catch and shoot, and he'll make a standstill three pointer when um, when it's when his number's called and Dame kicks it to him. Um, actually I think that we can transition from there to, to Carmelo Anthony who Again, like you look at his line in this game and he wasn't efficient, like three of 11 field goals. He did make 40% of his threes and he went to the free throw line a couple of times. Um, but we were just talking about the fact that um, I saw a statistic the other day that Carmelo Anthony in clutch situations during this restart, which uh, NBA defines clutch situations as the game um, is the scores five points or less between the teams uh, with five minutes or less to go in the game. And Melo's shooting about 51.6% or something. It's it's over 50% from three in those situations. And in today, in the run, after Dane made his long-range three, he uh, he converted on a three-pointer when he received the basketball. So what he's been he's been um, performing in his role in that situation. And um, he, like Melo also had five assists in this game. Yeah, he did. He looked. He made good plays, Melo. Often he can be someone who does take tough shots or shots that you might not necessarily want yeah. in the flow of an offense. Uh, there was a number of possessions where Portland came down in semi-transition and Mallow was very quick to take a pull-up mid-range. May not have been the best shot, but as you did say, Mallow's ability to make a clutch three, a really important three, that three he made with two and a half minutes left to put Portland up six, arguably one of the biggest shots in the game. If he misses that, it's still a one-possession game. He makes that, they go up six and didn't, didn't surrender the lead from there. Also, Mallow's ability to rebound the ball has yeah, been highlighted yeah. from time to time, especially with his... Camelo also in this game had 10 rebounds. Look, that's that's been something that he's been able to add value to teams, especially playing in Team USA. If he's playing the small ball four, his ability to get defensive rebounds has been really, really valuable. And in this game, it was exactly the same. He grabbed 10 rebounds against a big athletic front court of the Lakers. And that was, you know, that can't be understated how valuable that is for this team. Yeah, absolutely. I I just wanted to, yeah, you mentioned something when you were speaking before about um, Melo taking maybe less than desirable shots. And I mentioned that I'd noticed uh, a few times, um, I keep referencing back the Brooklyn game, because that's the one where Portland were probably pushed more so um, than in the Memphis game. Uh, in, the, the, in the Brooklyn game, when... When the Trailblazers were struggling to score against Brooklyn, it seemed like a lot of the time Mallow was posting up from the mid-range and he was sort of... Uh, they, would, they would send someone else over to double him. So he was like he was shooting fadeaway, contested jump shots over two guys. And like there's a couple of times where I'm sort of sitting there watching it going... Uh, like I can... Because I, I can see, because I'm watching the game on TV, I can see two guys open for three on the weak side. Obviously, it's tougher for Mallow to see those guys... Actually, I think you referenced a couple of times where the Lakers actually sent an extra defender over to Mello. Um, yeah, so that, that did happen a couple of times where Mello caught it in the mid-post 
and does get a bit black hole centric where he's got his head down, he's trying to back his man down and he's decided that he's taking a shot regardless of how difficult that shot's going to be. Uh, Danny Green came across to be a second defender in those situations and by the time Mallow even realised there was a second defender within the vicinity, he had still decided he was taking a pull-up shot. He wasn't able to make the Lakers pay from sending a second defender across in those situations, which potentially could come back to hurt him. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we spoke about Dame, we spoke about CJ, we spoke about Mallow. Uh, uh, and earlier on in the Lakers portion, we spoke about Wenyan Gabriel. The last guy, um, I I just want to give Yusuf Nurkic a lot of credit um, for the way that he's been playing. Is He's returning from a reasonably significant injury. And yes, he's had the advantage where he's had um, uh, a longer period of time to recover and rehab from that. Uh, he was due to come back um, right around the time that the NBA was um, put on hiatus. Um, so he's obviously had an extra four months to rehab from the broken leg. But even coming back, I mean, like, uh, many observers would note previous instances of an injury like this, like a Gordon Haywood or a Paul George, they might come back within a year, but it does take them a little while to get back into playing NBA-level basketball, get back into game shape. And what I think Nurkic has done a great job of is um, he's contributed at a high level for a team that really, really needs him. Uh, to be uh, like a, the third option of the offense and like the team's third best player, um, you know, in this game he had, I think he had a double double at half time. He finished with sixteen points on and fifteen rebounds to go with three assists. Uh, he did also have five fouls. Like he played thirty three minutes, um, which is obviously you can you can reduce his minutes a bit having Whiteside coming off the bench. Um, and he has, as the, the games have gone on, he, he has at times gotten um, uh, tired and sh visibly exhausted and, and has had, needed to come out of the game. But I think, um, for the most part, he's given Portland like such a... Um, he, he's re sort of reinstated their identity. Um, he's made life a little bit easier for Dame to be able to... For Dame to play off ball a little bit when you know they run the uh, offense through the high post. Um, and yeah, I just... You know, he's... I, you know, I really like Nurkic. Um, I, I like what he brings to the team on both ends of the floor. He plays real hard. Um, and I just wanted to yeah, no, mention the fact that he had a double-double um, in this one. Um, and that pretty much rounds out all the Portland guys. So, I don't know. Um, I know. I, know, I was going to say, I was going to say, Lucas, I don't know if you want to talk about any of the Lakers guys. I know but we spoke briefly about Kuzma um, offline as well. Um, and he, he played okay for the Lakers today. Yeah, look... Probably just before we go there, I do agree with everything you said about Nurkic. He did play right. well in this game. He did get to the free throw line nine times. He put a lot of pressure on the Lakers' bigs mm. with his physicality. And along with probably something that doesn't get mentioned as often, he's a really good on-ball screen setter. You know, everyone sees Dane pulling up from three from all those distance back. Quite often, that's off a high on-ball. Nurkic does a great job of wiping out Dane's man consistently and not setting illegal screens. Something that Whiteside potentially could get better at. He's a very, uh, he sets quite a few illegal screens. But yeah, uh, Nurk did a great job of setting screens, which allows Dame space to get downhill and get into yeah. the paint. He did a really good job of that in this game. And then in some of the previous games as well, he's been consistently good at doing that. Onto the Lakers. I thought, look, I'm a big Kyle Kuzma fan. I arguably think he should be starting, but that's... Oh, just to break in there, I, I, I get a lot of flack from, from this from people. I actually like Kuzma as well. I just think at times he can be a little overrated. Not, not. 
I, well, not that I don't think he hasn't got skill or talent. It's just it's purely comes from being a Los Angeles Laker. So I just want to break in and if anyone's listening that thinks I don't like Kuzma, it's not true at all. I think Kuzma is a going to be like a ten year NBA player with the the way that he's with the ability he has to shoot the basketball with his size. But sorry, I just yeah, no, that's a, oh, you're definitely right in saying that. I think that's a uh, part of the parcel of playing for the Lakers is yeah, yeah. receive a bit more coverage than potentially other teams. And for someone like Kyle Kuzma, who's a bit of a polarizing figure, a bit of a showy character, like yeah, you know, he's he's bound to get people who rate him extremely highly, and then also bound to have people who are really critical of what he does. Yeah, I thought he played solidly in this game. His shot making since the uh, since the NBA resume has been good, especially from the three point line. Uh, in this game, he didn't shoot overly well. He was five of fourteen, but he gave the Lakers good energy when he was on the floor. He was a plus five. He always runs the floor hard, and he did get into the lane a couple of times and made some shots at the rim. Um, look, outside of LeBron and AD, the Lakers didn't get great performances really from anybody else. Um, they were let down, in my opinion, by a number of their other players. Oh, Alex Caruso was solid. Uh, he played some good defense. He had three steals, but one of six from the field. And then just the, the, the lack of ability to knock down shots by the Lakers role players really hurt them in this yeah. game. Danny Green, four for 12, two of eight threes. A lot of those were really good looks. KCP, 29 minutes, zero from nine from the field, zero of five threes. Again, a number of good looks, a number of open threes, a number of good drives at the rim, and an inability to hit any field goals from this game really just meant that Portland could continually have extra players at the rim to meet LeBron, to meet AD, to send doubles anytime they got in the post without a real threat of another player knocking down consistent shots. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, we, we spent, you know, a good half an hour on that game, which you know, we came into this uh, recording today with the expectation of covering the Portland Lakers game extensively given our fandoms of both. Uh, I was just wondering, like, if you like, if there's anything you want to talk about with like the rest of today's games. I know I do want to talk about one of yet um, yesterday's games, but you know, there's obviously three other games today as we go um, back to back to back to back every day now for the playoffs. Um, anything from the other the, 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 the oh, excuse me, anything from the day's other three games that um, you sort of want to talk about? We can sort of go wherever. Um, wherever you want to go. Yeah, like, I, I saw a little bit of the Houston-Oklahoma City game. Um, yep. I've been relatively intrigued by that matchup, especially considering the uh, the player movement between those two teams yep. over the last year or so. Um, and I was really disappointed with Oklahoma City in this game. I thought they'd been playing good basketball consistently. Um, being a Lakers fan, I did watch the entire game they played against the Lakers um, about two weeks ago, and they were extremely impressive. Their ability to execute in the half-court, Ability to consistently get rebounds and get stops, headed up by Chris Paul. Um, yeah, I think I think they're a really, really good team. Even though they're, you know, they were, I guess, not rated overly highly coming into this season, given a low chance to make the playoffs. They've done exceedingly well, and I thought they were going to put a lot of pressure on Houston in this game, especially considering Houston not having Westbrook for this game. But Houston, look, Houston executed really, really, really well. Um, I was impressed by Eric Gordon. He looked aggressive. And he played really well, considering he has struggled for a lot of this season. Um, Harden also looked Harden did Harden things. 37 points, 11 rebounds in 34 minutes. Six threes, seven of eight from the line. And then Jeff Green gave them great minutes, as he had consistently since the resumption of the NBA. 
22 points, six rebounds on eight of 12 from the field and three made threes. His ability to play as a small ball five has been so valuable to this team. And I just don't think it can be understated his impact that, that he's had on this team. Yeah, I actually, yeah, so I also watched um, like a condensed package of this game. And yeah, I was impressed by, well, not only Jeff Green's ability to hit threes, like relatively open threes, as you said, playing um, as a small ball center, but his willingness to be able to, his willingness and capability to put the ball on the floor against the hard closeout and get to the rim. Like Jeff Green's always been super athletic and long um, and has had like a, a, a finishing package and the, the 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 knock on Jeff Green has just been either like uh, he's he's just inconsistent play or his willingness to like really want to like play hard, but he really seems engaged in this um, role that he has within the Houston Rockets ecosystem, um, and he he seems like he's playing with a lot of freedom and a lot of like enjoyment for the game, and it's just yeah like I was I've been impressed with yeah his ability to not only just shoot threes but like unlike someone potentially like a PJ Tucker or a Robert Covington, Jeff Green can actually um, uh, punish a really hard closeout, put the ball on the floor, um, and and get to the rim. Um, so yeah, yeah, I agree with Jeff Green. Uh, like obviously James Harden is a megastar um, and is just in complete control of his game. Um, he made yeah, he spoke about his threes. He was making them over like heavy contests. There was there was a shot. Um, and I believe he had uh, Danilo Gallinari guarding him, which obviously is not a, the most desirable matchup for the Thunder. Um, but Harden went to the three, and like Gallo's like six ten probably, and like it's got probably decent length arms. And I, I I couldn't believe it wasn't blocked. Like just James Harden's ability to make tough three pointers. Um, I I don't think I mean I've plenty of people have spoken about it, and I don't think enough can be said about that. But um, yeah, definitely echo those sentiments there um like houston they get they just have shooters up and down the roster which obviously that's the way the roster's constructed but like uh, pj tucker made an assortment of wide open corner threes ben mclemore shooting the ball really well eric gordon was in the starting lineup for russell westbrook and he um scored 21 points um i mean it is uh, like yeah I, this matchup was fascinating um and the way it's actually um, come to fruition. It would have been probably even uh, even better if Westbrook was able to be out there and playing. Um, so I'm sure he'd add a lot of fire and a lot of passion uh, to playing against the you know his former team and the team he won an MVP with. Um, but obviously, then the, the, there'll be a, there'd be a lot more um, emotion in that if the games were actually um, being played in their respective home markets and they actually had home games. I can't imagine what the reception for Westbrook. Um, going back to Oklahoma City would be probably a lot more favorable than Kevin Durant going back, I would say. But, um, yeah. I'll, I'll, you, yeah. You, you're talking about, we, we, just, we spent a lot of time just talking there about what with the Rockets and on offense and with them when they have the ball, but um, we haven't really touched on OKC too much. Um, so if you want to throw it back yeah, to Yeah, look, for, look I, I did only watch a portion of this game, but I thought Dennis Schroeder looked relatively rusty. Yeah. Um, he was look. I've been really impressed with the impact that he's had this season. He had a really, really good season off the bench for them in their you know much talked about three three headed guard lineup with uh, Gilgis Alexander and Paul. Schroeder looked. He looked really like he really struggled in this game. He played thirty two minutes and only had six points on three of twelve from the field, zero from five from the three point line, and the ball was stopping with him a lot. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The ability to switch from Houston's lineups not having a traditional center on the floor. 
Houston was switching every single on-ball, every single off-ball, as they've done for a long time now. And they weren't able to capitalise, and Schroeder really looked lost out there. For someone who's arguably been their top three player this season, he looked like he shouldn't have been on the floor at times. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, he's only played, I think, one game before this. He exited the the uh, the campus, uh, or the bubble. Uh, it was an excused absence. His wife is giving birth to their child. Um, so he's come back in. He hasn't had to do the extended quarantine, but he has only been able to get on the floor, I think, um, for one game before this, before the playoffs started, and they, they did play him pretty extensive minutes in that game. Um, yeah, like he um, he did he did have a nice move where he we, you know beat his match up and got to the room and scored. But for me, like probably predictably, like Stephen Adams feasted in this game as being a traditional center and being seven foot tall. Like he had seventeen points, twelve rebounds. He just was catching a lot of O boards and just like mashing on like a Daniel House or. Um, I think that was his primary victim. Like PJ Tucker, surprisingly, probably is, a, is still hard to move, even being a generous six foot seven. I don't think he's six foot seven, but anyway. Um, and then the other guy, obviously, that probably deserves mention is Chris Paul. He did struggle early on in this game, but then he he um, he came on late and put a, uh, had a put a real big effort into bringing the Thunder back um, a little bit, and he finished the game almost with a triple double. Um, the, the, the issue for Chris Paul in this game is he probably doesn't have his go-to offense, which is like running a pick-and-roll and then putting the center in like the blender and getting to that mid-range pull-up at the elbow or, the, or a fadeaway jump shot against the big man because like you just alluded to, the Rockets don't have one, um, first of all, and then they, cause they just switch every, and, they, and, then, and then they just switch everything. So in this one, it's, it's tough, probably tougher for Chris Paul because he doesn't have his like pet... Um, offense to go to, but you know, I still thought he um, he was uh, admirable and he still played with a lot of effort. Obviously, he's got a lot of feeling in this one as well. Um, there's been a fairly well-documented um, personal fallout between him and Harden, so there's sure to be some feeling there. Uh, I noticed Chris Paul trying to... Uh, with trying to I shouldn't say trying to guard, but Chris Paul guarding Harden and trying to stop him at times, so taking that match up personally. But, yeah, look... I might, um, I might just jump in. I've got one more thought on that yep. game. As you said about Chris Paul um, not being able to essentially put a traditional big man in a pick and roll, that's the predicament that Houston will consistently put teams in. I think they're going to um, advance from this round and play the winner of the uh, Portland Lakers series. Is Houston are a very, very awkward, unorthodox team. They're gonna, they, they, they present some interesting matchups for teams, especially teams who like to play traditional bigs. First of all, they switch. They're very switch heavy. They get a lot of versatile defenders, meaning that they can, you know, negate a lot of the benefits of a traditional pick and roll, as well as the, you know, their standard game plan of taking 50 plus three pointers. If they'll have a game like today where they shot 38% from three, they knock down 23s. They're very, very difficult to beat. Now they have a lot of shooters, as you said, guys like Ben McLemore, Jeff Green, James Harden, Eric Gordon, House Covington. All of these guys have the ability to go off for four plus made three-pointers in a game, not even mentioning Austin Rivers, and then they've got Westbrook as well. They've got a very, very versatile team, a lot of guys who can shoot the ball, and they're going to chuck threes. Yeah. If they're going to get up 60, if they make 25, 26, they'll beat anybody. They're going to be a very, very, very um, unorthodox team, and they're going to be very unpredictable, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything more to say on that matchup. I... We can probably just touch on quickly the other two games from today. Um, probably, because I know we spoke about this one uh, 
uh, before we started recording as well. But we got we had um, Orlando in Milwaukee in the one eight out east, and we had an appearance from Game One Orlando Magic. Um, <laughs> you know, to to go to to go in the in the uh, the annals and the likes of Hoodie Mellow, um, Untucked Kyrie, Face Mask LeBron, Headbandless LeBron. Uh, that's been that's been a thing. A bubble mellow. Uh, no, so game one magic came out and stunned probably everyone. Um, they beat the Bucks by twelve. Um, in like, I, I mean, I, I don't. I'm speechless. Like, I don't think anybody picked. Not only no one would have picked Orlando to win this series. I don't think anyone would have expected them to win a game. I know the guys, Nate and Danny on Dunkton, were saying bucks in three for this one, which is obviously impossible. <laughs> you do need to win four games to advance. Um, but yeah, it's 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 uh, just uh, like I said, I watched um, some of this game as well, um, and just Orlando's shot making from the mid range and also from three point um, territory. So they shot thirty nine percent from three. They shot sixteen of forty one. And shot just short of fifty percent from the floor overall. Um, like uh, Nikola Vucevic in this game uh, had thirty-five points without recording a single free throw attempt. He was fifteen of twenty-four from the field and hit five of eight threes. Um, I know Lucas mentioned to me he heard on the broadcast um, the the uh, the commentators saying that that was the the best thirty-five point game they'd ever seen. Um, I just I thought. What um, stood out to me was Orlando's guards, um, like Markel Fultz and DJ Augustine, their ability to run the pick and roll with Vucevic or the pick and pop or um, or whatever it was, and just their ability to find him um, on the just with little pocket passes and just set get him in positions to score the basketball. Um, yeah, DJ Augustine had 11 assists off the bench, um, so that probably um, that, that probably reinforces what I saw there on the floor. Um, yeah, like this. This game took me significantly by surprise, and I, I had, did have a message from another friend who said, when do I think the last time where the two number one seeds both lost the opening game of the playoffs? And I think, or I, my response was, I guess this could be, arguably could be the first time that's ever happened. Portland beating Lakers, clearly we think that might be a much closer series than this one, and I, for one, definitely would have had Milwaukee in a sweep. Um, I think... A guy like Vucevic, he's poised to have a big series in this. Whether Orlando continue to put some pressure on Milwaukee in the actual outcome of the series or not, um, just mainly by uh, Milwaukee's defensive style, they're very much a team who loves protecting the paint, and they're also willing to give up threes above the break, above the break threes. So as you said, that you know Vucevic in a pick and pop situation. He's going to have a lot of opportunities to take those shots and good quality shots from there. Today, he was 5 of 8 from the three-point line. If he can knock down shots anywhere near the realm of which he knocked them down today, he's going to continually pose a threat to that Bucks defense. You know, guys like Brook Lopez, Robin Lopez, even Giannis when he's playing a small ball five, they like playing drops coverage. They yeah. like they like protecting the rim. You know, their defensive scheme on the whole year has given up the highest quality and most amount of threes in any team in the league. So, which is interesting because, you know, more often than not, as the NBA moves forward in its progression, the three-pointer becomes more and more prevalent. You would think a defense would be trying to take away the three-pointers. But, the def you know, the Bucks 
defensive scheme of protecting the paint over the three-pointers in this game meant that a guy like Nikola Vucevic was able to knock down five from the centre position and really hurt them. Yeah. I mean, like, transitioning to the Bucks sort of things, like, Giannis, like, for whatever you think about him, like, he was really good in this game. Um, he had 31 points, 17 rebounds, 7 assists, and even was hitting threes. He hit three of seven threes. Um, but unfortunately, I can't point to a... Bucks teammate that really helped him out much. You, you look, maybe look off the bench. George Hill um, scored 16 off the bench and had five assists and shot the ball well. But he was always also a minus 11 plus minus. I, I know single game plus minus is not the most representative, but I find that strange because he looks like, well, probably almost the second best player today. I thought Eric Bledsoe was good, um, but he might need to step up his um, point of attack or on ball defense. Maybe to make some of these angles harder for the Orlando guards going forward here. Um, but look, Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez offensively were probably disappointing. They were disappointing. They Two of ten from three between them. Um, like, I mean, you, you can't fault like guys like Wes Matthews and Marvin Williams. They did their role. Or even Kyle Korver, they all shot 50% from three. They hit three-point jumpers, and that's their role within the team. I, I think it's... It, it, I don't. I don't think it's Giannis. Like they're, they're you know, um, they're, they're the what. Like I don't think it's what him that what makes them go. I don't think it's their role players. I think it's that middle tier, like Brook, Chris Middleton, Eric Bledsoe. They'll probably need to play a little bit better next game. Um, in my in my assessment of that. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what adjustments Milwaukee make after this game going forward in the series. Um, the Bucks have been a team I think throughout this whole. Throughout this whole season, I guess last season too, where they've been a prominent team, is they haven't played their starters overly large minutes. And in this game, again, you know, Giannis led the entire Bucks team with 34 minutes, Chris Middleton 31, Lopez 30, Bledsoe and Matthews both under 30. It'll be interesting to see whether those minute distributions do change going forward. They played one, two, three, seven guys off the bench. I think whether Coach Budenholzer decides to tighten their rotation a little bit, yeah. potentially play the starters some, some more heavy minutes, could be a move that he could go to as his series goes on. Yeah, um, Yeah. so look, I fully expect Milwaukee to, to bounce back from this one uh, and really uh, tighten up everything they're doing and probably um, make more shots next game and... You know, potentially Orlando Kulov. I think it's worthwhile trying to apply more pressure to Nikola Vucevic to maybe chase him off the three-point line, make him try to create more, get him trying to go to work in the mid-range. Like he's still solid in that, but um, yeah, if he less wide-open shots for him, the better. Um, I think the last game for today, I'm going to transition away from Bucks Magic and just talk about Miami versus Indiana in the four-five East matchup. Um, so this is an interesting matchup. These guys have already played. They played each other in two of their last three games of the seeding games. Um, and now they're matched up in the playoffs. So they're going to play, um, potentially at least four more times. Um, in, so that was about six out of seven games. Um, you know, TJ Warren, first team, all bubble, um, you know, had the 50, 53 or 51. He had a 50 point game real early on. He is, um, really, uh, excelling or flourishing in this role as probably um, the Pacers' four man, uh, with a lot more space out there without um, having two probably center or probably two more traditional centers now that Sabonis is out for Indiana. Um, 
So there was a lot of hype about um, TJ going into the first matchup with Miami because he'd been averaging like 40 points a game and him and Jimmy Butler do have history together on the court um, getting tangled up previously and they've had some words across social media um, in the past. So a lot of people were looking forward to that matchup and now we get it in the playoffs. Um, like, So probably just... Probably to start with TJ, he um, was he was he was good. He had twenty two points. He didn't get to the free throw line though, which hurt his efficiency. Um, he contributed in other areas. Had eight rebounds, three assists, four steals. Um, TJ was good, but in that matchup, um, probably uh, like Jimmy got him today again. Um, not so much defensively, but just in the like individual stats matchup. Jimmy Butler was really really good for Miami in this game. He had twenty eight points. He shot 8 of 15 from the floor. He hit two of two threes, um, which he hit down the stretch um, as he really uh, as he really dominated Miami's offense. Um, and he also went to the free throw line uh, six times. It was 10 of 12 from the free throw line. Um, like contributed across areas, uh, various areas as well. Three rebounds, four assists, four steals, two blocks. Um, oh, I, I think we're remiss to mention Miami um, won this game over Indiana, a 113 to 101. Um, but yeah, just sticking and staying with Miami there. They got great contribution from uh, a number of players on their roster. Goran Dragic was great in a starting role. He had 24 points. Bam Adebayo probably doesn't look like the most spectacular game statistically. He had 17 points, 10 rebounds, and 6 assists. He also added 3 block shots. But he absolutely... Miles Turner could not stay in front of Bam Adebayo when he posted up. Um, he was just going to the room... Um, consistently, he was uh, he was team high plus twenty three from Miami in thirty five minutes. Um, I thought he looked spectacular. Um, he's got he's really intelligent in the playing in two man games with the handoffs um, and just finding guys on three point line, especially Duncan Robertson. He's got great chemistry with Duncan Robertson. Um, but yeah, that like I thought Bam was fantastic. Um, in this game, along with Jimmy Butler and Goran Dragic. Um, I, I don't know, Luke, do you have any um, takeaways from this game, or do you see any of this yeah, one? Yeah, I, I didn't see any of this game. I do I do agree with a lot of the points you made. Miami have been an impressive team. Um, I think they've got great depth, great versatility. I love the addition of Iguodala to them, um, you know, mid-year. I think he just gives them a great presence off the bench, stability, defense, versatility. And then the fact that they've got veterans, they've got guys who have played in the playoffs before, Goran Dragic, guys like Jay Crowder, Jimmy Butler, they, you know, they're going to come and play every single game. I just do note for Indiana, Victor Oladipo did go out of this game. He only recorded nine minutes. Um, I think he got a, an eye or a facial injury. Oh, uh, did, yeah. Didn't return. So, look, that put a lot of pressure on the other guys to create shots without Sabonis playing as well. Yeah. That puts a lot of pressure on Brogdon and Warren to make shots themselves. Warren has shown an ability to do that. And, look, he did shoot well today. Brogdon, not as much. Six of 18 from the field. One of six threes was helped by getting to the line. Yeah, he made it up at the free throw line. Went nine of 10 there. And he also had 10 assists. I thought Brogdon was okay. But as you said, it wasn't super efficient. Um, but he did he did contribute there, um, which was which was good for Indiana. And it also probably presses um, TJ McConnell into service off the bench as well. Maybe a little bit more than... Um, some observers of the of uh, Indiana would would like, but um, he he sort of he does his job out there. I guess he had five points, three three rebounds, three assists off the bench. 
Um, but yeah, you'd probably still prefer Oladipo to play a lot more of those minutes where they had McConnell out there. Um, sorry, you were saying about um, Ola- yeah Oladipo went out. Yeah, he yeah you mentioned that. I did see that on the um, on the on the uh, package I was watching. It uh, yeah, it wasn't made clear what happened to him. It kind of looked like. He may have like done had a hand or a finger or something, but it does make sense that he got he got hit in the um in the in the facial region or in the eye or something like that. But yeah, um, good point to make about missing Oladipo. Um, you know, like Pacers, like they 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 they're gonna do it by committee. They're gonna play hard. They're gonna play defense. They're probably gonna take probably too many mid range jump shots. Like they took twenty four threes in this game. Um, they shot forty, nearly forty-two percent, but you probably want to get that volume up a little bit more, like because Miami shot thirty-five threes. Um, so, you know, um, they still made about the same percentage, but even then, you're um, the math game's going against you there. Uh, it's been a knock on the Pacers for a while. They probably do operate a lot in the mid-range rather than stretching it out to three. Um, have you any more thoughts on Indiana apart yeah, from Oladipo's injury? I, I just, I just think. Well, Depending on what Oladipo looks like for the remainder of this series and whether he's going to miss any additional time, I think it does put a bit of pressure on Indiana's depth, um, noting that they did play decent minutes to Edmund Sumner, Jakar Sampson, Doug McDermott. You know, not the three biggest names coming off the bench of a playoff team you've ever heard. Yeah, um, yeah I just think it, it puts a lot of pressure on their other players. And look, I think this could be a relatively short series with Miami. Looking good, you know they've got a lot of veterans, a lot of good defenders, and I, I think that I don't think they're going to muck around. I can see this series being done in five. Yeah, it, I I can't see the, the Pacers are just going to struggle to score, um, as well as containing. I mean, and the last thing I do want to say about Miami is that like Tyler Hero looked really good um, coming off the bench for them. He has been given more opportunity to operate with the ball in his hands rather than just being like a spot-up three-point shooter. He's actually demonstrating an ability to do that um, at, a, at, a, at a high level. Um, you know, running uh, running pick-and-rolls with the other guys that come off the bench, like um, Derek Jones Jr. and Kelly Olinick working with those guys. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. He just has an ability to... Um, he has an ability to not only shoot the basketball from three, but he's got a um, pretty good floater package and... Um, and um, he gets in the lane and finishes really well. So he's five of nine um, from the floor, um, and four of four from the free throw line. He shot one of five from three, but he had fifteen points off the bench on just um, nine uh, field goal attempts, and you know contributed three rebounds, four assists. So I mean, yeah, that's that's what I that's all I've got from Miami. Um, I did want to talk about one of the games from yesterday. Uh, and that was the Denver and Utah matchup. And the reason I wanted to talk about that was because um, of Donovan Mitchell. Um, and he was spectacular. He had, uh, as we, we touched on it earlier in the, um, in the episode, but yeah, Donovan Mitchell had 57 points in, this, in the overtime game yesterday, uh, Utah-Denver, which is the third highest playoff scoring performance in NBA history. And it was efficient as well. He did it um, on 19 of 33 from the floor. He took he hit six of 15 um, threes, which is great for him. A lot of them self, uh, heaps of them um, self-created too. So, um, 
Yeah, he and he got to the line 13 times, made all of those, had nine rebounds and seven assists. Um, so, but yeah, I just, I thought that Donovan Mitchell's ability to control the offense to, um, to really uh, be, you know, be calm, know, get to his spots, know what he's doing, um, and... Um, yeah, not only were Utah like getting Donovan Mitchell matched up against, you know, guys like Michael Porter Jr. or um, Nikola Jokic, who are like probably two of Denver's like weaker defensive players, especially MPJ. He's not yet; he doesn't have the ability yet to play defense at the NBA level. They forced Michael Malone to just n- not be able to play him. He got taken out. Um, didn't play any in the fourth quarter. Played. 31 minutes, like he can score, don't get me wrong, um, but he just can't defend yet. But the thing that I want to talk about with Donovan Mitchell's game yesterday, um, and it, uh, Lucas reminded me about it when he was talking about the the pick and roll um, pairing with Nurkic and Dame and the way that Nurkic sets great screens and really wipes out Dame's defender and allows um, Dame to pull from long range. That's something Rudy Gobert does a great job of for Utah as well. He's a willing screen setter um, and he sets... Um, he sets really good screens that free up, and especially like free up the ball handle in this instance was Donovan Mitchell. Just free him up to either get a clean look at three or get him going downhill, like I said, attacking guys like Jokic and, and MPJ in the um, in the pick and roll. So that's just, I want to talk about that. Look, I know Utah lost this game uh, in the end, um, and I'm spending the majority of the time talking about Donovan Mitchell's game, but that's, I just thought it was, he was so good. That like he, he also added nine rebounds, seven assists. He basically had to do everything, almost everything. Like Joe Ingles was good as well in a in a ball handling role, um, and like Rudy Gobert um, was good. Like obviously he's not a scorer. He had seventeen points, but he was efficient. He could have made more free throws, but um, he had four block shots. He matched up almost exclusively with Nikola Jokic um, and played really great defense on Jokic. Allowed. Um, him allowed Jokic only one shot within the restricted area and only, I think, seven attempts overall inside the paint. So Jokic had six attempts from floater range. Um, like, yeah, Jokic scored 29 points on 21 shots and had 10 rebounds, but only had three assists. And, um, and yeah, so um, I think Gobert did a great job of, like, really creating Jokic, not allowing him to be able to run the offense as freely and took away a lot of his passing lanes and passing angles. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with Donovan Mitchell. Super impressive game. I've been someone who's been somewhat critical of Mitchell over his career. Um, I, don't get me wrong, I think he's a really good player, but I think he's been someone who has a quote-unquote flashy game and someone who puts up points in a regular season but potentially hasn't done it in meaningful games. You know, he's quite often been inefficient. And just because he, he can hit pull-up threes, he can throw down flashy dunks, that he's someone who can be overrated. But, you know, not to be, not to be uh, understated his, his impact in this game here. 57 points is, you know, nothing to sneeze at. It's a seriously impressive game. As Dan said, some nice contributions from Ingles and Clarkson. On the other side of the ball, the Nuggets hit 22 threes at almost 54%. Um, You know, you're not going to lose many games shooting the ball like that. Jamal Murray, nice game from him. 36 points, 6 threes, 9 assists. Uh, Jokic's ability to also hit threes will be pivotal 
as this series goes along um, to be able to stretch the floor, to get Gobert out of the paint. Uh, Jokic was able to knock down four threes in this game and then to get three-point contributions from Jeremy Grant, Torrey Craig, Michael Porter. They've got an assortment of shooters, a lot of long guys. Yeah, they're a versatile team. I think, I think Denver should take this series relatively comfortably. Um, but yeah, look, there's going to be a lot of put, a lot put on Donovan Mitchell's shoulders, especially um, you know if Conley stays out of the lineup. I'm not too sure why he was out. Do you know why he was out? Oh yeah, he's left on an excused absence. His um, his wife just gave birth to their child as well. So the same exactly. as Dennis Schroeder's absence, and uh, also Gordon Haywood will be leaving. Um, for Boston with the same absence as well. Right. But yeah, um, yeah, Mike Conley uh, left the bubble on an excused absence uh, for the birth of his child, and he's expected back. He'll only have to do this short um, quarantine, um, and uh, they're expecting him to play, I think, games three and four of the playoffs um, well, and obviously, and if it goes further than that, um, but and as I quickly touched on, yeah, um, Gordon Haywood will also miss, uh, I think, the Celtics' second round series should they advance against Philadelphia. Um, although he has just injured his ankle um, and is potentially going to miss games in this current first round series, he's definitely already out for the second round as he'll be leaving uh, Orlando to go and um, to attend the birth of, I think it's his fourth child, I think. Gordon Haywood already has three daughters. It's maybe going for that son. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's his fourth child. So way to go, Mrs. Gordon Haywood. Um, doing great work there. But um, I think quickly, the last... We're probably not going to talk too much about that Boston-Philly game um, or the Brooklyn-Toronto game. But uh, we did want to quickly talk about one of the other games from yesterday, which is... Los Angeles Clippers versus the Dallas Mavericks. Because um, I know, Lucas, you actually did uh, watch a bit of this game. Uh, and I've obviously I've seen um, the condensed game and, uh, and the stats and all that sort of stuff. So, But, um, yeah, I know you were very uh, uh, complimentary of Luka Doncic. So. Mm, yeah, look, I, I thought this was going to be an intriguing matchup. I was quite excited when I saw that Dallas were going to play the Clippers. Because um, I think Dallas are a team who are threatening no matter who they're playing. Uh, look, a bit in a similar mold to Houston is they've got a very high-powered offense, and if they're on, they're, they can beat anybody at any given time. So I think you know, I think they're an exciting up-and-coming team. I do like, like, I do like Luka. I do like KP. So I, I was intrigued at this matchup, and I did catch quite a bit of this game yesterday. Um, look, Luka came out and struggled early. Uh, yeah. I think that was that was pretty well documented. I think he, he made... had the ball stolen from him at the, at the jump by Pat. <laughs> he may have had four turnovers in the first three minutes of the game. Um, he, I think he had five, or he might have even had six in the first quarter. So look, a lot of pressure on the young man. Someone who's an MVP candidate in only his second year of basketball in the league is, you know, a lot of pressure coming into this game. And I think a team like the Clippers, who have got a lot of defensive, you know, guys who get up in you, know, a lot of wings. You know, they're a team that are just perfect to match up on a player like Luca. You know, they've got a lot of guys who can guard him. And they were in him from the jump. They were all over him, knowing that he was going to shoulder arguably the entire offensive burden of the team. To his credit, Luca came back and was very, very good in this game. He did have 11 turnovers for the game. Yeah. That's, look, that is what it is. But the remainder of his game was very impressive. 
His ability to stay under control, to play on balance, to just use his his unique style. You know, he's, he doesn't have any remarkable moves. He just changes pace really, really well. He stays on balance, and then he makes tough shots in the lane. And then, as everybody knows, makes great plays for teammates. He was great in this game. You know, he, he got to the line consistently. He was able to beat anyone who Dallas put on, uh, sorry, who Los Angeles had on him off the dribble. Whether it was Kawhi, whether it was Pat Bev, whether it was Paul George, he, could, he was getting into the lane on those guys. Not with remarkable speed, not with 15 crossovers, just making steady moves, change of pace. He did such a good job. Luca's ability to, yeah, get into the lane, to create opportunities for himself, to get to the line, and then to, you know, kick out to shooters was so valuable in this game. And his composure as a, as a young guy, especially in his first playoff game, was really impressive. Yeah, you mentioned, like, the free-throw line, and as you were speaking there, I was just having a look like... Yeah, 14 of 15 from the line. Um, and, like, yeah, talking about his ability just to get by guys um, and get in the lane, like, I just... I noted that Luca had, like, an array of, like, yeah, jump stops and step-through moves, like, playing off two feet in the lane, like, head fakes, scoop shots, getting, you know, in, up and around the defense, like, even finishing with, like, great body control and strength and, like, hanging and hitting and all and, and that sort of stuff. Like, you know, we're talking a lot about Luca like, in a loss. He had, like, 42 points... Um, which is the highest scoring, like it's a record um, highest game of anyone playing in their first game of the playoffs. Um, it tops uh, a few notable names like George Mikan had 37 um, in his playoff debut back in 1949. Um, Kareem had 36 um, in his playoff debut in 1970. And more recently, Derek Rose scored 36 points against the Celtics back in 09 in his playoff debut. Um, but yeah, Lucas now tops amongst that um, pretty illustrious group of players. Um, yeah, and, you know, just... Um, yeah, just pretty virtuoso performance after that first quarter, you noted, where he had the, the six turnovers. Um, but, yeah, you know, it came in a losing effort, unfortunately. Um, you did mention um, the guys that um, the Clippers have um, to defend Luca and obviously some of the other perimeter players for Dallas. Um, and before we just talk about... Um, or as we're transitioning from Dallas with the ball to um, uh, the Clippers with the ball, before we talk about the Clippers' offense, I just did want to note that I thought um, Maxi Kleber did a great... He actually, I thought he did a good job at attempting to guard Kawhi. Now, Kawhi still had a great game um, and made a, a heap of tough shots, but I thought like Mark, um, Maxi Kleber did a, a good job of... Um, sorry, Keeps, I've, I've pronounced that two different times already, and I don't think either of them are right. I think it's Marxy. <laughs> I think it's Marx. Marxy Kleber. Um, anyway, that's really neither here nor there. Um, but uh, <laughs> as we cross over the, as we cross past the uh, one hour mark of recording, it's divulging into, devolving into madness. Divulging, divulging. into. Nah, that's 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 all right. Should be all right, mate. Um, but yeah, like I thought, yeah, Kleber um, was re really respectable on Kawhi, considering. Um, you know, that he's more of a big, and I thought he made a lot of Kawhi's looks really tough, made him shoot over contest and shoot over hands. But, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the Clippers with the ball, they don't run um, a super complicated offense. It's not super intricate. Um, they, you know, they, they isolate quite a bit. Um, they run, you know, a few pick and rolls here and there. They run a little bit of off-ball stuff, for like PG. Um, but, yeah, predominantly their offense is just... You know, get the ball in the hands of their primary creators and let them go to work and try to screen to get a mismatch. Um, and 
and yeah, I mean, like Kawhi, um, you know, was good in this game um, without being overly spectacular. He was just really solid. He didn't shoot great from three, but he finished with 29 points. It was still efficient. He had 12 rebounds, six assists, which has really improved part of Kawhi's game, um, especially late last year through the playoffs for Toronto and then this year for the Clippers. He's really made an effort to improve his playmaking for teammates um, and his ability to uh, get assists. Um, and then, like, you know, their other top-line attraction, Paul George, like, just um, he made shots. He hit four threes. Um, wasn't super efficient. Didn't get to the free throw line much, but, you know, he's really smooth. He can pull up and hit. Um, he's obviously 6'8 or, or so, and so he can shoot over guys. Oh, yeah, he's just really um, yeah, he's just really good at making shots, um, which is still of primary importance in the NBA is the ability to put the ball in the basket. So Yep, and another guy who gave them great minutes was Marcus Morris. Yep. Um, you know, his addition to this team to play predominantly at the four, but a little bit of small ball five as well, he was really good. You know, he was eight of 13, made three threes and had four steals. And had a game high plus 25. I know, as you said earlier, Dan, that single game plus minus isn't always the uh, best indicator of whether or not a player played well. But, you know, the, the Clippers played good ball when he was on the floor, yeah. along with the majority of the starters, but he was good and really stepped up in a game where Montrezl Harrell struggled mightily at times. Yeah. You know, he was, he copped. Cop the end of a Doc Rivers spray about not running the floor hard at all, which was definitely deserved. You know, he was out there just sauntering around expecting, you know, to, to get his 18 points and six rebounds without breaking a sweat. And he, he didn't have a great deal of impact on this game whatsoever. Yeah, he's, um, he's been out. Uh, he's been out. He's only just returned to Orlando dealing with um, a personal tragedy. Um, so he had... It was an excused absence, but he did have a longer quarantine period, which I think means that he wasn't able to meet um, testing requirements on every day that he was out of the bubble. Because um, he had a funny length quarantine of like, I think it was seven days. So what that makes me think is maybe every day they're not able to get tested outside. They just add that to the quarantine period, perhaps. Um, I haven't heard any like official word on whether that's the rule. But um, but yeah, I know Doc Rivers was um, lamenting his extended quarantine, but that, that's just the way it goes, that the NBA wants this to continue. We all want to continue seeing NBA basketball. So um, they're just applying the rules as they set from the outset. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, you mentioned Morris as a small ball five. I, I know um, the Clippers went to a lineup that they haven't gone to almost at all this season, which was basically Pat Bev, Lou Williams, Kawhi, PG, and Marcus Morris, almost just trying to get your five, I wouldn't say five best players, but maybe your five most talented perimeter players out there on the floor at the same time. Um, and yeah, like, like you said, Morris's ability to guard players across all positional across the whole positional spectrum allows the flexibility for them to play super small in that lineup and then um yeah i think that that's been talked about that if um you know if so someone like the Houston Rockets who we spoke about earlier if they were able to get to the western conference finals and potentially face the clippers like the clippers can almost do what the rockets do but like with better players and go super small and have three point shooters at every position <clears throat> position excuse me but but yeah um uh, that, yeah, that's all I've, I just wanted to add on that point about Marcus Morris. But yeah, look, yeah, I think I think the Clippers are, are a very dangerous team. They're looking good. You know, they've got they've got great depth. The fact that they've got guys like Reggie Jackson, Montrez, Lou Will, even Landry Shamet off their bench. You know, they they're going to have big contributions going forward, and I think they're a dangerous team. Dallas, Dallas go as Luca goes. Yeah, you know, in this game, obviously Porzingis did get ejected. Yeah, that was second technical foul, which. 
it was a bit dubious, but look, you put yourself in that position with a technical foul, getting involved in a scuffle, whether he did anything wrong or not. That's, you know, he's got to, he's got to deal with the, the repercussions of his actions. So that, you know, I think he's going to need to have a big, big, big impact on this series going forward if they're to take even one win, Dallas. Look, I, I thought this game, uh, this series potentially could be a five-game series. But after looking at this game, I just think, I just think that I don't think the Clippers are going to going to let one slip. To be honest, Dan, I just I just think they're well drilled. They've got veterans. They've got guys who have won at a high level before, and I think they're locked in to go all the way to the Western Conference Finals, if not all the way to the finals. And yeah. you know, I, I, they've just got the makings of a really, really genuine contender, um, led by Kawhi and Paul George, and a, a really good smattering of role players. I think they're. They should be championship favourites at this point. Yeah, so uh, I haven't got any more notes on that game. He touched on the Porzingis ejection. I don't really want to go too deep into that. Um, I do have a lot of respect for officials and NBA officiating. Um, and, like, you, you know, um, we that just has to be... Um, you just have to be more careful about the way you conduct yourself on the floor. Because um, a lot of... like, uh, I can't say that I, I, I saw the second one. And I didn't see what the first one... I didn't see the first one um, on actual... The, the footage of that, but um, from what I heard, it was an air punch tech, which has been um, called just recently in other games and has been um, consistently called all season. So, look, we won't spend too much time on that. Quickly, to probably finish out today's episode, I wanted to probably touch on a bit of the NBA news. There's been a, a various um, NBA firings or um, resi- uh, resignments, resignings, resignments. Resignations. Resignations is a great <laughs> is a great way to put that. Um, so, first of all, the one I want to speak about is, and I know I want to speak about this because uh, we've discussed it previously. Is so the Chicago Bulls um, uh, moved on from head coach Jim Boylan. Um, in let me try and say Arturus Kavishnis in his role as the uh, primary decision maker for the Bulls has moved on from Jim Boylan, um, and it's a move that. For me personally, I think it's overdue. Um, I obviously don't know Jim Boylan personally. could be a great guy for all we know, but he's had a, certainly a series of missteps with the team and the team's personnel um, and uh, that have been well-documented through the media and well-publicised. Um, and I know... Uh, look, um, the on-court product in times has been... Uh, good, like defensively, Chicago overperformed their personnel yeah, in this regular season. But I just think that there was too much, there's too much of a fractured relationship with key players on the roster, and there's too many missteps in the media for Boylan to continue as the head coach of the Bulls. But Lucas, I know that you had some probably, um, you wanted to play devil's advocate a little bit with my sort of view there. So, yeah, look, I understand Boylan has been quite heavily scrutinised due to his unorthodox methods of coaching. Um, but, look, I think extremely often that it's frequent that the coach sort of cops the... Uh, what's the right word here? The coach generally is the person who goes... Yeah, he's the fall guy. The he fall, the that's exactly right. Yeah. The coach can be the fall guy for lackadaisical production from the players. And Dan and I did have a, a conversation prior to this about that And I sort of just touch on the fact that I don't necessarily think that the fact that the Bulls haven't played well and then haven't necessarily improved a great deal is his fault. He's involved, clearly, but 
I don't think their lineup screens a team that's going to win any more than 25, 30 games or however many games that they win this season. You know, yeah. it wasn't a great deal. But I think they're still a long way away from being a true contending team. They're young. They've got a lot of guys who are good on one side of the ball but not so good on the other. You know, their best player is a really, really, really bad defender in Zach Levine, arguably one of the worst statistical defenders in the league. You know, they've got a, a young rookie point guard. They've got young bigs. They've had inconsistent health. I think he's been put in a situation where to expect him to have results and to expect them to be pushing for the playoffs, which I presume in bringing in a new coach, they're, they're thinking that they're, I guess, closer than that than probably their production points to, that I think that's a tough situation. And look, I, I understand from time to time, bringing a new coach can spur on, you know, differences, better relationships, um, you know, could could do something different and shake it up. But, yeah, I, I just think too often the coach is the fall guy for, you know, the players who are, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, Chicago, yeah, this was, this firing came, is primarily framed by expectation for the Bulls roster and what the front office did um, prior to this uh, nineteen twenty NBA season. They went out and they signed guys that had performed, um, really solidly in their previous stops, like guys like Tomas Sadoransky and um, Thaddeus Young. So they added veteran players to the core of young guys like uh, Larry Markinen, Wendell Carter, Zach Levine, um, Chris Dunn, and then their draft pick, uh, Kobe White. So the performance of this Bulls roster was, the or, or the lack thereof, was primarily famed, framed by expectations of them to contend for the playoffs. And then furthermore... Um, like a player that I just didn't even mention as part of the young course, someone like Otto Porter Jr., or he's probably a young veteran now, uh, injured, was out. He was their best and probably only NBA-caliber wing player. Um, but, like, at various times through the season, like, key players missed time with injury. Um, you know, Wendell Carter's missed a lot of time with injury. Larry Markinen had a few uh, interesting little things. He had a heart issue, and he had a um, he's had some niggling injuries here and there. Um, and... So like I, I and like I, I so I can understand that that you know there was the there was injuries that played into the performance of the team this season and and quite frankly guys that came in like Thaddeus Young just didn't play as well as they had done the season before um, and that was disappointing I, I thought Thaddeus Young was going to be a really good addition for them to be able to play alongside either Wendell Carter or Larry Markkinen so playing um, you know, inside uh, as the center with Larry or um, playing outside as the powerful with uh, Wendell Carter. But, you know, that didn't come to fruition. Um, and uh, you're quite right to say that, you know, the the assessment uh, from us observers on the outside of what we think about the Bulls roster um, can be can color our perception of the, the job that the coach did or the record that the team achieved through the regular season. So, I mean, that's, that's a fair point. Um, I just think, you know, with some, some of the well-documented instances of um, late-game timeout use, the punch clock at the practice facility, the wind sprints and push-ups uh, in a, in a well, I think it was a Sunday morning practice after a back-to-back, um, you know, like, yeah, they, they, these are things where guys may need, like, you know, conditioning or discipline, but, um, you know, on one hand, you might say, like, these guys um, get... Uh, you know, mollycoddled by like the NBA players, and they don't have enough of that sort of stuff. And but um, at the same time, I think there's a certain level of candor you need to um, exhibit when you're dealing with NBA players that maybe 
um, that maybe uh, Jim Boylan just doesn't have and maybe he's more suited to be you know, in a, in a lead coordinator position or as an associate head coach as he was previously or maybe um, as a head coach at the college level. So, Yep, I can agree with that. And just probably the, the final point on that is, do you have any thoughts as to where Chicago might go in their search for their next head coach? Um, so I would be, I think they'd be targeting like the quote unquote, like the developmental coach. So like a younger guy that's had a track record of, um, getting, uh, achieving regular season success with a team that maybe doesn't have, um, a, like a superstar player. And like, so the name that comes to mind for me is like someone like Kenny Atkinson. Um, for me, he was immediately the, the coach I thought of that may suit this roster. Um, given that. He probably uh, he has experience with Brooklyn, which which will suit the, uh, which will help him build rapport with the veterans on the Chicago team, and also then he's um, got a, got got um, experience with the developing guys like Joe Harris and Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis Levert, um, which hopefully bodes well for um, Bulls players uh, like um, like Kobe White, for example, who's an extremely intriguing prospect, um, but needs to really refine and because he's got some rough edges right now to his game and he really needs to refine what he is in order to be a successful sort of long-term player in this league. Um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, like the, the Kenny Atkinson type hire um, is someone who I think they'll be targeting just because of the... Pro- I, I think that maybe the Bulls' uh, ownership in the front office or maybe a little bit frustrated by the lack of development from someone like a Larry Markinen, um to this point. Um, probably not so much... Uh, Wendell Carter because he's he's probably just been able to actually be on the floor and get reps and play. He's had a lot of injuries, um, and he, but even like someone like Zach Levine who's a, a little bit older now, but someone that can really get him to to really um, get better on defense because if they need him out there um, a lot to create um, scoring opportunities and to put the ball in the bucket himself, but he's just uh, he's just so inattentive and um, unmotivated on the defensive end that. Maybe it's a coaching thing. Maybe it's just something that where to where he's just never going to be a good NBA defender. But maybe a change of voice um, uh, at the at the top of the coaching um, uh, the coaching roster there in Chicago can can help that. So uh, yeah, like for me, it'd be it'd be a Kenny Atkinson type hire rather than the rather than somebody in the like the Steve Clifford mold, who's like an older guy that's you know he's he you know that, that can maybe oh he he could he, like I know he's not on the I know he's not available, but um, but yeah, I think someone like the Kenny Atkinson type, um, maybe someone like Darvin Ham, uh, who's assistant coach for Milwaukee at the moment, um, who is was um, one of the developmental assistant coaches for Atlanta Hawks when Mike Budenholzer was um, the head coach there and is now Mike's assistant in uh, Milwaukee. Maybe he's someone that they take a look at, but I have no doubt that, that with... Um, uh, Aternus now taking as long to evaluate Boylan to make this decision. Now I have no doubt that the coaching search will be equally as thorough, um, and they'll evaluate a number of candidates, which um, uh, which is which is going to be highly beneficial to get a look at a lot of different people. Yep. Yeah. Look, I agree with that too. I know some of the other names that are floated around, potentially a guy like Jason Kidd or Teron yep. Lou, but. Look, I think at this stage of where they are, and the, you know the teams that they've coached previously, potentially 
would be better off with a team at a different developmental stage than Chicago. So I, I definitely agree. And a guy like Kenny Atkinson would, yeah. would I think he'd potentially be, you know, yeah. the, the first candidate that they should look at. Well, actually, you're mentioning, like, those guys like Jason Kidd and Teron Lou. I think that can transition us down to New Orleans, where the Pelicans have moved on from coach Alvin Gentry, who's been there for a number of years now. He first came to the Pelicans... Um, I think from the Golden State Warriors where he was an assistant coach for a time period there. Um, and Gentry came in to New Orleans to try and... And this was back in the, the Anthony Davis, um, Drew Holiday core. And he was gonna he was brought in to give them a new identity um, in terms of maybe being able to push the pace um, uh, and just revamp and give them uh, a more high-powered offense. Um, but he... You know, he's been there for a number of years now and he in, all of a sudden inherited... Uh, a young nucleus, um, this core of young players that uh, the Pelicans obtained from the, the Lakers. Uh, he has been through a change in general management. So he's seen Dell Demps, who hired him, he has been moved on. And so now he's been working under um, David Griffin. Um, so that's always uh, that's always uh, troubling for a head coach when... The the manager GM that hi, uh, the hired you is now gone. Uh, Gentry and David Griffin do have a history dating back to their Phoenix Suns days, I think. So it wasn't he wasn't as on um, such untenable ground as maybe some other coaches, but um, in the end um, decided that it's time to go in another direction um, with the with the Pelicans roster or the Pelicans job. So I throw the same question back to you that you hit me with, like, what where would you see the Pelicans like looking um, in their search for a new head coach? Um, oh, I guess it's an intriguing one. I think it's a job that will definitely be in high demand. Yeah. Look, I I think there will be an enormous people lining up to coach Zion Williamson. Yeah. I think a guy like Teron Lou could be someone who could be really really valuable to this team. Obviously, someone who's coached high level players before, known how to deal with that sort of thing, as well as you know won a championship with Cleveland. I think that you know over the next. Probably three years, New Orleans are going to be moving into that, or if they, you know, stay on this current timeline, moving into that bracket of contention with guys like Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Lonzo Ball, as well as like a veteran like Drew Holiday, moving into that bracket over the next two to three years. I think they need a coach who is at that stage of their coaching career too. Yep. Not necessarily one who's going to focus on development, but I think the idea for the New Orleans Pelicans is to to turn towards, well, they want to start trying to win sooner rather than later. And, you know, their 30-42 and 42 record this season um, is probably indicative that, you know, they're, they're going to be looked to be pushing to getting into the playoffs as soon as next season. Yeah, I've heard... Yeah, that's the name that I've was thinking for the Pelican job, Teron Lou, and I've heard that name uh, around quite a bit. And at first, um, I thought that it was just kind of like the easy the easy candidate to throw out there, given, again, that David Griffin has an established relationship with him, dating back to Cleveland. And also the fact that I always thought it was um, interesting that Teron Lou basically became a head coach because it seemed like LeBron James wanted him to be a head coach. That's obviously one small part of Teron Lou's, you know, um, experience and, you know, coaching journey thus far. And it's probably unfair of me to colour my perception of him based on that. Obviously, he won a championship in Cleveland, which is going to endear him to the veterans that the Pelicans have. And what I've also been thinking a lot about lately is it's shown a lot of like humility and on uh, Teron Lou's part to go and be an assistant coach once again to Doc Rivers in, in at the Clippers. And that'll give him a tremendous 
um, amount of like springboard or more experience and uh, knowledge to be able to go into his next head coaching job. So I think working with Doc, who's firmly established around the league now, is one of the league's best coaches, being able to work with a roster that has championship aspirations, but he's also trying to balance um, superstar veterans with um, guys like Landry Shamet, um that are coming off the Clippers bench that do need to develop as young players. And there's probably more Clippers guys than I'm just... Um, blanking on right now that are young guys that are looking to contribute to this team. Guys like Avita Zubac um, and even Jermichael Green, who's not that old. So they do have guys that um, they are mixing and matching vets and developing young talent in a, uh, with the Clippers. And I think that experience he's had there with Doc Rivers could hold him in great stead coming into a situation with the Pelicans, as you said, where you've got, on one hand, Ingram, Zion, and Lonzo, but on the other hand, you've got Drew Holiday, um, Derek Favors, and you know JJ Redick, potentially, that are going to be there and they're going to play on that team. And I, like, yeah, so I, I'm as I as I work as I work my way through it now, I'm starting to think that he's um, a really good candidate for that position. So yeah, I think that's yeah, I'm pretty um, I'd I'd be, but and you also made a great point that you know being having the opportunity to be with that team potentially that for the next you know eight to ten years if you are successful and sort of grow and develop alongside Zion and go as far as he goes and as and the team will go as far as he takes them um yeah it is it's an op, it's a coaching opportunity that'll see um and uh, probably a number of names um putting the throwing their um, name in the in the ring for that and you'll see a lot of agency and a lot of agents really pushing for their clients to be in consideration for that job I think so um Unless you've got any more thoughts on the Pelicans, real quickly, the last the last one is that um, Sacramento Kings general manager, Vlade Divac. He stepped down, slash resigned, slash was fired. Um, I think it was the latter. Uh, <laughs> and look, um, the vet, uh, Radadive, has had an interesting uh, ownership period of the Sacramento Kings. Um, but they, look, uh, well, we, we've discussed this one as well. Look, Vlade, um, it, the biggest, the biggest knock on the biggest um, mark on his resume is selecting Marvin Bagley over Luka Doncic, um, which unfortunately has probably set the Kings back quite a bit. Look, Vlade did some good things with the Kings. Um, you know, uh, the Demarcus Cousins trade ended up being well executed for them. Demarcus didn't have much, um, many bright spots. Uh, outside of Sacramento, once he was traded from there, he had a brief, um, brief run with the Pelicans where he was good with AD, but then obviously went down with the Achilles, and since then has suffered quad and ACL injuries, and they got Buddy Heald out of it, um, who turned into one of the league's, um, you know, premier marksman, a real sharp shooter. Um, so the Demarcus Cousins trade was well executed by Vlade. Um, drafting Darren Fox uh, has been really, really good for Sacramento because he's proven. To be that he's a you know uh, a top fifteen point guard in the NBA uh, at this point. Um, he, he executed some shrewd draft night trades like acquiring Bogdan uh, Bogdanovich from the Phoenix Suns. Um, but yeah, there's there's been some missteps along the way. Um, you know, trading unprotected first round draft picks to clear cap space, which he then used to sign guys like Costa Kufus. Marco Bellinelli and Rajon Rondo. <laughs> um, there was the uh, head-scratching and league-wide um, baffling pick of George's Papianianis back in, I think, 2016. He was the lottery pick. Picked him 13th overall. Uh, I, 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 
I, I, like I, I can't even pronounce his name properly. So he obviously was not in the league for very long at all. Um, but yeah, and but it's just it's the Bagley over um, over Doncic pick that's really the, was the final nail in that particular coffin. Um, but I don't know if you have any more thoughts there on Vladi's tenure with the Kings. But yeah, look, I. <laughs> I have heard referenced um, from other people that they said that Luca potentially has the, uh, well, sorry, Luca has the potential to get a number of GMs fired. So I think, yeah, mainly Marvin Bagley, you know, in comparison to Trey Young and uh, DeAndre Ayton, has been more of the uh, the pick that has looked less favourable compared yep. to, you know, selecting Trey Young and trading or taking DeAndre Ayton, who have both turned out to be quite good players in their own right. But, um, yeah, I, I, do, I just think, as you sort of mentioned, Dan, uh, over a, a number of different decisions by him, that he hasn't had the greatest tenure as the GM or the president of basketball ops, whatever position that he was holding as the decision, the lead decision maker there. He hasn't had the greatest tenure, and I think that Sacramento are still a quite a long way from being a real contending team. Look, they do have some intriguing pieces there, but, you know, I, I still think that they're probably three to five years away from yeah. from forming that roster into something that's a genuine contender with the right pieces and the right guys. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a good decision to go in a different direction and potentially bring in someone new who could have some different philosophies as to how to take that roster forward. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a really quick... They, the Kings seem to be really quickly overtaken by, like, the Phoenix Suns... Um, and the New Orleans Pelicans, and especially like at the end of this season, like during as a team in the West that's on the come up or a potential playoff contending team, and I think we'll see the West is going to only get tougher next season. Like Golden State are going to be better, and even Minnesota could put together a really potent offense with Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell. You could see another season that sees Sacramento. Uh, if not on the in the bottom of the Western standings, but in, in the bottom three, I think it's going to be really, really difficult for them to contend for the playoffs. And, you know, um, another like and speaking of playoff contention, like the closest they got with their thirty nine wins last season, uh, another decision there was you know removing Dave Yeager, who was the head coach of that team, and um, employing Luke Walton, who I I know Lucas, you have thoughts about Luke Walton. He, he obviously came. He obviously, as a head coach, came in um, with a decent reputation. Um, you know, he was in place um, for one of Golden State's winning streaks as the head coach while Steve Kerr was out with surgery. Um, was he? Did, did the Lakers employ him as head coach? They did. Yep. He yep. coached, I think, two seasons with the Lakers. Yep. The first season was twenty. Ooh, what do I mean? Twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen. Yep. Um, the latter being LeBron's first season at the Lakers. Yeah. And it was pretty evident that, yeah, I look, I, I think Luke Walton is arguably the worst head coach in the NBA. Um, some of his decisions with lineups, he's, yeah, he, look, it was a plethora of things when he was the head coach of the Lakers. I was routinely frustrated by him and the fact that they've brought in Frank Vogel has, you know, yeah. shown what a, a true head coach can do. So, look, going back to him being with the Kings, I think going forward that, you know, the, the rendition of this team that, that does make the playoffs, however far away that is, I, I don't foresee Luke Walton being the head coach of that team, nor do I see Walton getting another head coach job Yeah. at the conclusion of his tenure with Sacramento. I think the thing with Sacramento really is they just need to start nailing some draft picks 
is probably the biggest thing. You know, outside of De'Aaron Fox, obviously we touched on Marvin Bagley. Just going back, their previous draft picks, they had Marquise Chris pick 8, 2016. Willie Cauley-Stein pick 6, 2016. Well, they must have traded that. Oh, they did trade that pick. Sorry, I can see that was traded to Phoenix. Willie Cauley-Stein pick 6. Nick Stauskas pick 8. Ben McLemore pick 7. Thomas Robinson pick 5. You know, these guys all being top 10 picks, yet none of them have turned out to be really long-term yep. players, let alone productive players. You know, they, they missed they missed players consistently over, you know, a five to six-year stretch. They, they, you know, if you was to give their drafting a grade, it'd be a D or potentially lower than that. So, you know, they really do need to start nailing some draft picks. While being a team that's not in the playoffs, they're going to get good draft picks. They need to start hitting on some of these. Yeah, yeah I, I think that was well summed up in like citing their drafting record. And I don't really have much to add on the King situation, except with the exception of the fact that I, I would hope they conduct as the bulls do for their, in their coaching search, a, a real thorough search um, for a uh, primary or a lead decision maker um, in that organization. Uh, I think that um, look, there are former players that make great executives um, and someone like, you know, James Jones in Phoenix is proving that he's, got the understanding of what to put together, uh, how to put a roster together. But also I think gone are the days where you can just hire somebody um, that played for the organization or is a high profile name and expect them to be able to execute um, basketball decisions at a high level. Um, I think there needs to be really attention paid to the, the, the guys that have really, you know, come up through scouting or uh, as um, cap experts um, within the organization or like guys that have come up through the video room or, you know, just... Uh, not necessarily former players, but guys that have you know been lifers and they've you know studied this stuff, gone to school for this stuff. They have the background in this stuff, and they can really um, and like you know the example of those guys is someone like a Sam Presti with the Oklahoma City Thunder, um, or, or a or even a even a Sam Hinkie. They're both called Sam. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like Hinky was is obviously not a basketballer. He came from a legal background. And he executed the Philadelphia 76ers tear down. You know, some people say, well, it's easy to tear it down. How, how easy is it to build it all back up again? But, you know, um, I, I think that with the changes in uh, man, general management at um, in Philadelphia since Hinky's gone, uh, haven't exactly yielded the best results there either. Um, I think it's fair to uh, assess him on the body of work he put together before they really switched to, uh, you know, being competitive and trying to contend. So, yeah, I think, I hope that the Kings, uh, you know, really conduct a thorough search and really consider the guys that, you know, have a a, a mind for administration or um, the legalities of the, um, the CBA and the cap and all, all of that good fun stuff that, um, that goes into running a, a, an NBA basketball team. But... Um, I think as we've crossed over the 90-minute mark of recording this one, um, unless you've got any more thoughts there about anything we've talked, you know, we hit some news. We did a fair, we covered off quite a few uh, NBA games from the beginning of the 2019-2020 uh, NBA playoffs, um, and yeah, so I think you know I'll I will probably leave it there. And thank, sounds good to me. Thanks yeah. for having me on, Dave. No, that's right. Thanks for coming on. As we've you know we've talked a lot in the past about. Um, Talking about NBA on a pod, um, and you know it was fun to do that. Um, you know, it keeps us uh, active and, and engaged and busy during, you know, our times that we're, we're in right now. So um, yeah, thanks guys for checking us out. Um, I'll just uh, I'll end this one here. We'll take a quick break and I'll outro this episode shortly.
If you're still here, thanks for sticking with uh, Lucas and I for over 90 minutes as we talked NBA hoops. Um, look, we're massive NBA fans, and it's something that we've been talking about doing for a long time is recording a NBA podcast. So today was the opportunity to do so with the um, with the uh, the Trailblazers meeting the Lakers in the playoffs. Um, you know, obviously this the, the podcast took a slightly different um, tack today, less about sneakers, more about um, actual basketball. But if you are someone that uh, is um, interested in, in sneakers and, and checking out what I'm doing on socials, you can find me primarily um, on Instagram at hoops underscore sneakers underscore. Um, I've also got the hoopsneakers.wordpress.com site up and running now with a, a few articles. I've also got some um, top picks pages going. Um, so I've put a lot of work into... Um, uh, I'll put a lot of work into uh, letting you guys know what I think of the top basketball sneakers from various brands. Um, and I've also got a, I set up a page with my favorite sneakers. If you want to go over there and check that out and learn a little bit about what I like, but um, I really appreciate Lucas for coming on and just riffing with me today. Um, you know, uh, appreciate his time and thank you for that. And um, yeah, like, like you can, you know, check me out anywhere else that you think, you know, you might, um, someone might have a social. So, you know, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, um, Pinterest, YouTube, uh, you name it. Um, and there, yeah, with all that being said, you know, if you've got any feedback for me, like good or bad or indifferent, whatever it might be, um, you can, you know, DM me on Instagram, uh, send me an inbox on Facebook, um, you send me an email, daniel.cooper.88 at outlook.com. Um, but yeah, like thanks for checking out this different episode for today. I hope you guys liked it. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it was a long one, but you know, I appreciate you sticking and staying with us all, all the way through that. With all that being said, I will catch you guys on the next episode of the Hoop Sneakers pod. You've been with Dan uh, at Hoop Sneakers. Peace.